Well, I am, I am Jesse. That's normally what I do. But uh, today, since Matt is out, I'm going to uh, bring the word for us this morning. And so I actually had a really a, a packed week. I went back home to visit my family in Kentucky. They are, my parents are selling their house that they have lived in for the last 30 years. The only house I have known since I've uh, been alive. And so uh, my brothers and I planned kind of a surprise trip back to visit my parents. And we played a game of baseball in the backyard and grilled out and did all the fun stuff in the house one last time before it is no longer in our possession. And it was really great. And we, we went to eat at all the fun places that we normally go eat at when we go back home. And I went to my favorite place one night. And I say one night, I mean, we really ate there twice while I was there because I just really love this place. It's called Sol Azteca. It's a Mexican restaurant. If you ever find yourself in South Central Kentucky, make sure you go there. It's just wonderful. So we went that night and I just had a wonderful time with my parents and my family. And it reminded me back in high school, we would go, when I say every day, you probably have this understanding in your head that I mean, like we would go just a couple times a week. And I genuinely mean we went every day uh, to this Mexican restaurant after school. One time uh, we went off to youth camp, my best friend and I, who would go there with me every day, uh, we, we kind of had withdrawals while we were on camp away from it for a week. And so when we went back, we ate there 10 times in seven days. And this is not the kind of place that's open for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Uh, and so we had seven dinners and three lunches there. And, and I also don't want to, you to have this impression that I'm eating something different every time I go. <laughs> I've eaten the same thing at that restaurant since I was a child as I got this week. I've never ordered a different item from there. It's the is special. It's a wonderful thing. So I was just eating the same thing all the time. And so we would go, and we, we really felt like we kind of owned the place. We would go in, we'd sit down, we knew the waiters by name, they knew us. They would bring us, they didn't just bring us like just one glass, they would bring like a, a pitcher of our soda of choice that they knew we were going to drink. And at the time, I thought that was really cool, and I thought that meant like, man, they really, like, we're regulars here. Now I recognize they just thought, man, these are really annoying teenagers. Let's give them a whole pitcher of this so we don't ever have to talk to them again. Um, <laughs> And so we would, we would go in there, we would eat all the time. There was a, a, a school, a kind of our crosstown rival high school, uh, and there were kids in there that we just weren't particularly friends with, and they were kind of snobby and stuck up. And, but they also felt the same way about Sol Azteca, and they were there every day. But their ritual looked very different than ours. Their ritual was they would come in, would sit down, they would get their free basket of chips, and they would get a water. And they would sit there, for hours, drinking water and eating their free bowl of chips. It used to make me so angry that they were just so entitled to these free chips. One time I even saw them send them back because they were so salty. And I thought, you losers, that's not what any of this, you're ruining it for the rest of us. You're ruining these free chips for the rest of us. And I thought, that's how entitled can you be? You can't complain about free things. So when I, I, we got this passage this week and kind of walking through 1 Corinthians, Paul's kind of hitting at something really similar again. These Corinthians feel a little entitled to something being given to them for free. If you remember back early on in the book of 1 Corinthians, Paul is interacting with them in a kind of defensive manner. They are a little frustrated with Paul about... Uh, either some way he's preached in the past or some way he has led them in the past. And they're complaining. And Paul's going to get to this passage and he's going to say, I've been doing this for free. You can't complain about free chips. 
You can't complain about this. So let me read the passage for us this week, give you a little insight into what Paul is going to be talking about. I think my beard might be giving some feedback, and so if that's the case, I really apologize. I'm not shaving anytime soon, so get over it. <laughs> We're in chapter 9 of 1 Corinthians. We'll be in the first 14 verses. And he says this, Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I'm not an apostle, at least I am to you. For you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This is my defense to those who would examine me. Do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife, as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for the oxen that God is concerned? Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do not we even more? Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple? And those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings. In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. So Matt didn't just happen to choose this week to be out and that, to leave me with a passage about getting paid. That's not really what happened. So don't. Don't find any illusions there. They, he had that uh, PhD uh, dissertation defense set, so I'm really excited for him. I think that's going to be a big deal. for. So Matt's out, but I'm really actually excited to preach on this passage because it doesn't have to be really hard for us. Because let me tell you something. If you're a member of Ridgecrest, I want to say a massive thank you from the pastoral team here at Ridgecrest. You all do a wonderful job caring for us, not just financially, but emotionally and relationally. And so when I get to a passage like this, I think, man, I'm so thankful to be in a church who does a good job of taking care of their pastors in a multitude of ways. I have friends at other churches who their church kind of takes the old motto of, Lord, you keep him humble and we'll keep him poor. And I'm just very thankful that's not our motto. And so that's not really what uh, is, is going to have to happen today. I, if they, there may be, if I had a, that buddy maybe call me up someday and said, hey man, I'm not getting paid very much. Do you have a sermon that you could come preach? I'd say, man, let's go to 1 Corinthians 9. This is going to be where we go. But that's not the sermon that's going to get preached today. So you can breathe a little easier if that's where you thought this was going. It's not where we're going today. So let's look at the passage a little deeper and see maybe where we could find some application for our context. We've gotten the congratulations already. Let's see where we can find this application. At first glance, we're going to see that it might be kind of an, an argument, Paul's argument for why he should be 
paid. And a deeper look at the text shows what he's actually doing is he's, he's modeling kind of true leadership for the Corinthians. Paul wants to highlight that he's not just building up this argument that he should be paid. He's building up this argument so that he can relinquish this right to be paid. See, in chapter 7, he said, you, you have these rights. You have your kind of sexual liberty, your sexual right. You are called to give that right to your spouse. And in chapter 8, Matt's just been preaching about kind of what do we do about eating food sacrificed to idols and, and these, these amoral things that we're involved in. And he said, you're supposed to give those up, give up those rights to your brothers and sisters in Christ. And it's almost as if Paul is expecting them as they're reading it to say, well, that's all good and well for us, but what are you doing, Paul? If you're such a great leader, how are you modeling this? You're not married. You've already said you don't really like me, so it's not a big deal for you to give that up. How are you modeling this? What's it look like for you to sacrificially give up your rights for others? How are you practicing what you're preaching, Paul? And what he says here in these 14 verses, he says, I'm willing to give up my rights, my financial rights, for anyone who might come to know the gospel. So, as we're looking at the passage a little deeper today, let's think about it in that light. Let's think about this as Paul teaching a master class on what it looks like to practice what you preach. That's what we were going to see here today. But first, I want to make a really quick note about what this passage is not. We do a, a pretty... Uh, we see our main job is kind of teaching the word here. But one of our other main jobs as leaders of our church is to call out false teachers when we see them. And I want to tell you that this passage has been abused so much by teachers over the years to live lives of just ultimate lavishness. And that is not at all what this passage is. And so if you ever hear a preacher arguing that he needs more money so that he can buy his jet. Or that if you only send a $25 seed gift, that'll, that'll seed this ministry and that'll show you how you're going to, you know, you'll, you'll receive it back in turn. Or I'll answer your prayers for a hundred bucks. Or I sent you this prayer rug. I got one of those in the mail. I'd never seen one of those before. Send you this prayer rug and you send me a thousand dollar seed money. That is money grabbing. That's what that is. And this passage actually speaks directly against that. Preachers, we, we need to be willing to give up our financial rights if that's what it takes. And so those people on TV who you see doing things like that, I watched an interview that made me sick to my stomach of Jesse Duplantis and Kenneth Copeland talking about how they needed, not just the jet they had was not fine enough. They needed bigger jets, better jets to do their ministry. These are people who prey on weak and needy people who are at the lowest points of their life they were willing to do anything to find help. And they say, send me your money. That is scheming and the world sees it as such. And so I feel it is our duty kind of as, as uh, leaders of this church to call that out when we see it. That is not what the Bible calls us to. So as, as a pastor, as a preacher, I, I'm going to quickly shut that down. The world recognizes that scheming. And this is a massive problem for us. They have made a horrible horrible case of what it looks like to be a preacher. 
Now, on to the passage at hand, kind of exegeting and walking through the passage at hand. Let's start here in verse 1. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus Christ, our Lord? Are not you my workmanship in the Lord? If to others I'm not an apostle, at least I am to you. For you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. And so Paul starts out here and he's asking them four questions. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen the Lord? And are you not my workmanship? He's asking them in a way that necessitates the answer being yes. Because if the answer is yes... Everything he has just said is trustworthy. And everything he is about to say is right. So if the answer to all four of those questions is yes, then what he's just said is trustworthy and what he is about to say is important. If the answer to any of those questions is no, then everything he said in the last eight chapters and will say in the next eight chapters is totally worthless. So for the sake of a sermon today, we're going to assume the answer to those questions is a yes, or else I'd be done. But he, So the first question here is, am I not free? And so this question might seem a little bit odd to you. If you're going to follow what he's about to say next, you may say, well, what does that have to do with anything that's following? And really that question actually goes back to chapter 8. Because at the very end of chapter 8, he's just told them that he's willing to lay down his rights I'm not willing to eat meat if that's going to be what causes a stumbling block for you. And since he's placing himself under a brother and sister in Christ, well, someone who places themselves under someone, we would call a servant. We would say that person isn't free in a sense. So Paul's first question is, am I not free? Am I not free to do as I want? And what he's going to do here is he's going to establish his own freedom kind of as his status of apostle, his status as the strong. And then he's going to show them how free he truly is. He's going to show that he's willing to give up his rights. That's actually the mark of the most free person. The most free person is able and willing to give up something. So if you're bound, you're not able to say, well, you know, I'll give up my right to be bound. I'm choosing to be bound. No, only the free person can choose to go into slavery. He's saying, that's how free I actually am. But question two is actually the question he'll answer first. And so Matt will touch on the am I not free portion of it. That'll come later in the second half of chapter nine. But what we really deal with is questions two, three, and four. Am I not an apostle? And then questions three and four really work out of that. Have I not seen Christ? Have I not done a work among you? And so we would look at Acts 9 and say, yes, you've seen the risen Christ. And, and we would look at the lives of the Corinthians and they would be able to answer that question for themselves. Yes, you have done a work in us. And so he's going to say, well, and then I'm an apostle. And, and I know some of you may see church titles as all the same thing. And so apostle and disciple and deacon and pastor and preacher and minister, they may mean all the same thing to you. But in fact, there's a, a really distinct thing what it means to be an apostle. And so I've heard recently some people calling themselves an apostle. And let me know, tell you something, that's, that can't happen. So I'll give you some qualifications currently to be an apostle. One, you have to be dead. Um, you don't have to be, but there just aren't any more around. You can't be an apostle in living today because of these next things. One, you have to have had a sight of the risen Christ. That cuts out people who are alive. 
a divine commission from Christ, and you have to have been inspired by the Spirit of God. So this is what the apostles do. The apostles have taken part in writing our scripture. And so actually, Paul's apostolic kind of claim is huge for us as evangelical Christians because we believe that our Bible is, in, is inerrant. It's, it's, it's inherently true. And so every word of it, not just the words in red that Jesus said, but the words that Paul says here in 1 Corinthians. You may really like your red letter Bible, but let me tell you, the words in red are no more important and no more true than the other black words that you find in your Bible. We recognize that all of Scripture is God-breathed. And so Paul's apostolic succession is actually extremely important for what he's making. He's making an argument that his word is true and valid. So we have to answer yes to that question if we're going to go on. And what he's going to do as he goes on, he's going to say, I'm willing to renunciate my rights. I'm willing to give up my rights. It's almost in those four questions if he's asking them, am I not your leader? And so if I'm your leader, should you not be willing and able to follow me in the giving up of your rights? Paul said otherwise, elsewhere in scripture, follow me, essentially follow me as I follow Christ. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. And he's showing them an example here how they can imitate him. So we've seen that Paul's goal is not really to demand his rights, but rather to kind of give them up. But it's almost as if he's saying, but just in case you're wondering, here's actually a pretty lengthy discourse on why I really should be paid. So for the sake of expositing the text today, we're going to walk through that. And we're going to look at what it means. Why should Paul make his living off of this? And maybe this has been a hang up for you in Christianity. And so I want to maybe explain this a little bit biblically. Why preachers and or ministers of the gospel or our missionaries, why do we support them financially? And so Paul is going to explain that. So look with me at verse 3. We'll be in verse 3 through 6 for a second. This is my defense to those who would examine me. Do we not have the right to eat or drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing wife as did the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Cephas is Peter, just in case you're wondering. Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? So Paul is saying here that he has the right to have his basic needs met, provided for by those who owe their lives to him. He has the right to have his basic needs met by his work, as do we all. You do work and you are paid accordingly due to your work. And so he's saying, do I not have the right like all of the rest of you to earn a living from my work? A more understandable way maybe of reading verse 4 is this. Do we not have the right to be provided food and drink, maybe by our work? Phrasing it as a question like this relates it back to chapter 8, which is about eating and drinking this sacrificial fare. And so Paul is going to show them, I'm not talking about these kind of superficial or extracurricular things anymore. I'm not just talking about just this meat sacrifice to idols. I'm actually going to show you I'm willing to give up my right to make money to eat it all. That's how, that's how big I'm willing to go for you. So he's connecting us back to chapter 8 with this. It was extremely common in that age for uh, teachers to come through, uh, philosophers to come through, and they would 
uh, they would teach in the, in the city. And, and, and if, if what they taught helped you or changed your life at all, you would pay them a little or you would keep them for the night or you would feed them. You would somehow give them a wage for what they've done for you. Not too long ago, but I don't think any of us were alive. You had these kind of itinerant preachers that would go around and they would get a gathering and they would get full of the spirit and they would preach to a group of 500 and they'd pass the hat around. And that's how they made their living. That's what they did. I don't, I'm not wearing a hat today, so I have no hat to pass. So just breathe easy. Remember, remember, this is not what it's about. But Paul's making his argument for this. Paul's not doing this. What he's saying is ministers and missionaries and, and, and kind of ministers of the gospel should not have to be so preoccupied with providing for their basic needs that they can't devote themselves wholeheartedly to their work. They can't get so distracted in their work that they have to deviate. If he thinks for a chance that he has to preach a certain way so that he gets paid, he's distracted because maybe he has a large mortgage to pay over here. Or if he thinks, man, I've got to feed my, my 17 kids, and so I've got to preach in this certain way, and so well, I've got to go over here and, and do this certain thing. And so you're becoming distracted by the worries of the world. And, and Paul's saying, don't put that burden on your pastors. Don't put that burden on your preachers. Don't unnecessarily hinder them in that way. Because by providing for ministers and missionaries, what we do is we make it possible for them to study their Bibles and prepare their lessons and, and devote time to discipleship so that we can be properly prepared. If we, we support, uh, through our church, we, we give money to the uh, Southern Baptist Convention's cooperative program, which goes to support things like the International Mission Board and the North American Mission Board. Collectively, as Southern Baptist churches, we support over 7,000 missionaries and church planners all around the world. Because of the gifts that you all give to Ridgecrest, and we turn around and give to the Southern Baptist Convention and the cooperative program. Actually, just as a church kind of as our body, separate from that, we support three families, kind of individually, financially. Let's imagine that they didn't have that support, that financial support, and they had to work multiple jobs to continue to do what they were doing. Their ability to minister to the, the community around them would be greatly diminished because their time and their efforts and their mentality would be pulled astray and pulled aside from their single focus that we hope they have in ministering the gospel. And that's what Paul is pointing out here. That's what Paul is pointing out here. And how he's going to explain this is through a handful of images from Scripture, a handful of images that are steeped in kind of Christian tradition. So uh, we're going to be in, chapter, or in verse 7 for a second. Who serves as a soldier as, at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses. You shall not muzzle an ox. There we go. Bring it. That's for the spirit there. You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for the oxen that God is concerned? Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing the crop. If we've sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim, do not we even more? And so he's going to give a couple examples of what it looks like 
practically to earn your wage. He's going he's gonna to make really five arguments. He's going to say, I have a five-point sermon for you guys today is what he's going to say. I don't have a five-point sermon for you today. But he's going to say, I got a five-point sermon. Here's the five reasons I deserve to be paid, essentially. And the first one is, it's just kind of common practice. Look at the soldier and the farmer and the shepherd. The soldier, he's not funding himself going out to war. And, and the, the farmer who plants his fruit, and plant, he's, he's going to take some of that and he's going to eat of his own fruit. And, and the shepherd who tends the flock, of course he's going to take some of that milk for himself and no one would fault them for that. No one would fault them for that. And so our work kind of has a natural kind of intrinsic outworking of a profit of some sorts. And so Paul is going to tell them that my work, what I'm doing amongst you, is spiritual. There's not a material outworking of my work. Because of that, there needs to be some material that is, that is given. If, if I've done anything for you, it's almost like he's saying, help a brother out. If I've done anything for you, help me out. Help me out a little bit. I mentioned I went back home, and uh, one of the places I got to eat was my family's restaurant. We own uh, uh, kind of meat and three. If you're not familiar with the meat and three is, your mind is about to be blown because it's the simplest thing that there could be. There's a meat, and then there's three vegetables. That's what it is. It's as simple as that. So if you ever see a meat and three, now you know what it is. So we got a, a meat and three, so we've got really wonderful stuff. Some, I'm getting you hungry for lunch. We got fried chicken and country ham and some pork chops every now and again, and it's good stuff. And then our vegetables are really desserts because um, we live in the South. And so uh, like these baked apples, they're just sugar all in them. Just don't worry. So you, you kind of have to shut your brain off when you go in there and just think, I'm going to get unbelievably fat eating at this restaurant, and it's okay. And so, uh, my family owns a restaurant. I only worked there one summer, and mainly because I gained so much weight while I worked there. So I just said, I probably just don't need to work here anymore. I'm getting far too portly for this. But I was the farmer who ate his own fruit and the, the shepherd who took the milk from his flock. If I were frying up some chicken and there are 10 in the pot, I'm going to take two of them as my wage for making that chicken. If I'm making those green beans, I'm going to take two big, kind of massive heaps of green beans for myself. They were just, I was just testing the flavor. That's all it was. Or if I'm making a tray of rolls, our rolls are really good, and so I'll probably take four of them. And so it just, I way out-earned my wages that they paid me in the amount of food that I ate that summer. And since I family, I'm family, I've eaten a tremendous amount of food since then. So I've really, I'm way one up on them. They, I owe them a decent amount of money. And Paul's saying, I was fine to eat that food that I made. I made it, and so I'm fine to eat it. And so if, if my aunt ever wants to get mad at me for eating that food, I'm just going to point her right here to this scripture. I made the food. I deserve some of it. It's necessary to earn a wage for your work. And so he's going to go through this. Why should he earn a wage? What's well, common practice? Look at the soldier and the farmer and the shepherd. Second, he's going to say there's kind of a scriptural precedent for this. Look at Deuteronomy 25.4, and that's what he quotes here perfectly in this verse. You shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. So essentially, if you, were, you have the grain and you have to tread it out, they don't have tractors back then. 
And so you're, you're on this ox, and if you were not a nice or kind farmer, you would put a muzzle over this ox so that he can't eat any of the grain while he's treading it out. But God has made provisions for this ox to be able to eat the work that he's doing. So the kind farmer would take the muzzle off and let the ox go and let him eat while he's threshing. And so Paul's saying, if God cared that much for the ox, how much more would he care for the minister of the gospel? If he's making these provisions for the ox, how much more is he going to care for the minister of the gospel? So that's point number two. Point number three he's going to make is that there's just kind of an intrinsic justice to getting paid for your work. There in verse 11, he said, If I have benefited you in any way, would you not support me? Can you not help me out a little bit? If I've benefited you in any way, is there no justice for me? Once again, he is assuming the answer to this question is going to be yes. You've helped us, Paul. You've given us wise teaching. You've shown us the way to go in life. Of course we can help you out. The minister of the gospel is, is not doing this for the money, but he's doing it because it's all he can do. I mean, make that as a word to the wise for any of you out there who are potentially thinking about going into the ministry. If you can do anything else, do it. Do, if you can do anything else, do it. I have no other talents. None. It's worthless. But also, like if, if you get excited about anything else, do that. God has, has designed you for a certain thing. So what Paul's saying here is, even if you don't pay me, this is still what I want to do. But he's making the point. It's biblical for you to do this. And so moving on in, in uh, the second half of 12 through 14, he's going to make the final, his final two points. Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. So here are your final two points. The final, Paul's five-point sermon. He's going to say, here's point number four and five. Point number four is this. There's Jewish custom. When they, if you've ever wondered, they're bringing these burnt offerings to the to sacrifice, they're not just burning them to the crisp. They're cooking them. So they're going to burn them, and then the priest is going to be able to take them home, and he's going to be able to eat that meat. That's part of his wages. This is what, part of what would sustain the priest. This is part of their wages. It's much like me at our restaurant. These weren't sacrifices. These were just really good pieces of country ham. But since Paul isn't taking sacrifices anymore, there should be an equivalent. That's what he's arguing. Since I'm not taking sacrifices anymore, there needs to be an equivalent for the minister of the gospel. And finally, in verse 14, he mentions Christ's command. Now, if you go looking through your red letters of your Bible, if you go looking and try to find this command from Christ that the minister of the gospel needs to be paid, you will come up short. You're probably not going to find it. So we have three options here. Option number one, Paul's making it up. We've just already said yes to a lot of his things. So let's just not even entertain that one today. 
Option number two, Paul has access to maybe some words of Christ that we don't or a document that we don't. That's possible. But option number three seems like the best one. It seems like he's potentially looking at Matthew 10, verses 8 through 10. And I really like how the NIV kind of renders this, which says this, Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons. Freely you've received, freely give. Do not get any gold or silver or copper to take with you in your belts. No bag for the journey or extra cert or sandals for the, or a staff. For the worker is worth his keep. This is when Christ is sending out the ministers of the gospel. And what Jesus is doing here is he's expecting the people of God to take care of the worker of God. That last little bit there, for the worker is worth his keep. He's essentially saying, if you're any good, if you have the spirit, the people will take care of you. My people, the church, will take care of you. And it's this principle that Paul is showing in verse 11, that you sow spiritually, but we reap materially. The minister of the gospel should get his living by the gospel, should earn his living by preaching. So that's what Paul is showing here. But again, the main thrust of this passage, what I want you to understand, the main thrust of this passage is not that Paul is trying to build this argument so that Joe Bob comes up to him at the end and says, you know what, Pastor, I think you're right. Here's a hundred bucks. That's not what his goal is. His goal in all of this is to say, I want to highlight how big of a right this is. You really do owe me this but I'm willing to give it up. I'm willing to give it up. He's showing them that he is willing to practice what he has been preaching. He's willing to sacrifice his rights to others because Paul knows this truth about other people that we know as well. People won't believe what you say. People will believe what you do. People don't believe what you say. People will believe what you do. And for some reason, this is extremely hard for us to understand. We like to talk a lot. We like to preach a lot. We like to tell other people how to live their life. But we're not so good at the doing part. We're not so good at the practice, at the living it out. And here's why I think we're not so good at that. Because there's a set of three things to do and we invert them. I think to actually practice what you preach, you have to be what you're preaching. You've got to believe it down into your core so deep that it's part of who you are. You've got to believe it so deep that you are that truth. Once you've gotten to that part, then you can begin to do it. Then you can begin practicing what you already deeply believe. Once you've met that part, then you can begin to say it. You can begin to preach it. Now, but what do we do? We invert those. We talk, talk, talk. We preach, preach, preach. Maybe we'll do something here and there. But deep down, we're always questioning, am I right? Is that really what I believe? See, James actually calls these people double-minded. He says, you think one way and you do something 
else. We switch it around. Imagine having a boss who preached financial accountability, yet you found out that he was evading taxes. Or imagine having a teacher who all the time preached timeliness in her class, yet showed up 15 minutes late every day. What's the first thing you do? You lose trust in the person. I'm not going to listen to anything you say because you didn't practice what you preach. And here's your nice preaching alliteration. Practice what you preach or pay the price. Because if you don't practice what you preach, the price that you'll pay is no one will trust your words. So if we remember back, Paul's saying, am I not an apostle? Are the words that I'm saying not trustworthy? Let me show you how trustworthy I am. Everything I've preached to you, I'm willing to do myself. Everything I preach to you, I'm willing to do myself. He's saying what we do and what we say have to match. He's been saying, give up to your rights so that anybody may come to know the gospel. And he's going to say, I'm willing to do that here. There are some then, as there are some today, who are going to say, man, preachers, they make way too much money. They're kind of schemy guys. I don't want to listen to anything they say because I I heard that guy talk about his jet or I saw that house he had. So I don't want to hear anything about preachers and how much money they make. So the first second you started talking about how much money I owe you, I'm done with this thing. And Paul's saying, I'm not talking about that because I'm willing to give that up. I'm willing to take a step back and give that up completely because that's a hindrance for you coming to know the gospel. So for Paul, he's saying, I'm giving that up totally. So that's the big question for us today. Matt asked us the question last week, what are you willing to give up? What rights are you willing to relinquish? And I'm going to ask a similar question. How are you willing to practice what you're preaching in life? How are you willing to model Paul in practicing what you're preaching? Because our culture has answered this question for us. And they've said, you, Christians, you don't do it. If you Google just hypocrite, which I did this week. After you get past all the definitions and this really weird article about Henry David Thoreau, you get into two groups of people. Articles and blogs about two groups of people. Christians and politicians. I don't really want to be associated with them. Not the Christians. I'm fine being associated with them. I don't really want to be associated with the politicians. The culture has answered this question for us. That's what a hypocrite is. People who do something and say something else. So Paul is teaching a master class right here what it looks like for your life to match what you're saying. Now see, here's the big difference. Our culture wants to tell us, here's what you're preaching and here's how you're living. Just drop your preaching. Just drop your preaching. Bring it down here to my level. Bring it down here to where you're actually acting. Come join me in sin. What Paul is saying, here's what you're, pre- if here's what you're preaching and here's what you're living, elevate your actions. Bring your actions. Raise your practice to the level of your preaching. Be ready to back up your words with actions. Don't live those disjointed lives. Live lives of integrity. Be willing and able to practice 
what you preach. Take all that you are saying and you're preaching and run it through your life. Are you living up to the standards that you're proclaiming? Don't lower your standards. Raise your actions. A gospel Christian is not someone who merely says they believe the gospel, but one whose life reflects gospel priorities. It's someone who practices what they're preaching. And so today you may be in here and you may be in one of a handful of groups of people. You may be in here today and you're, you're not a believer. And you say, man, I'm not a believer because I've seen hypocritical Christians. I'm not a believer because, man, I saw that thing. I saw that same interview you were talking about with Kenneth Copeland and Jesse Duplantis. And those guys sick me out. I don't want to have anything to do with that religion. Let me tell you, that's not what the Bible calls us to. And thankfully, you don't follow me and you don't follow the person sitting next to you in the pew today. We follow Christ. Christ is the perfect model of this. I've been saying that Paul is teaching this master class on what it looks like for your actions and your words to match up. But where Paul learned that was from Jesus. Jesus lived this perfect life where his practice and his preaching match up perfectly to be a sacrificial life. So don't look at the person that is sitting next to you and say, that's, not, that's why I don't want to come to see Christ. Look at Christ and say, he lived it perfectly. So I want to remove that hindrance from you today. If you're here today and maybe you're young in the faith, I want you to reflect on the question Matt asked last week. I think that's still a good question that this passage is hitting on. What are some rights that you are willing to restrict? Maybe what are some rights that you have that you're not willing to restrict? What are things you're holding on to too tightly? Love will restrict freedom for the sake of others. Or maybe you're in here today and you would see yourself as a mature believer in Christ. I want to challenge you to check what you're preaching and check what you're practicing. Are you able to practice what you preach? Do your life, does your life match up? with your words. Remember, don't drop your preaching. Elevate your practice. Because who are we modeling? We're not modeling some enigma, some feature that, that I'm not modeling the person sitting next to me. I'm modeling Christ. Raise your preaching. Raise your practice to the level of Christ. That's what we're being called to. Let me pray for us today. God, we are thankful for your word that it is good and true, every bit of it. That you have established leaders in front of us like Paul, willing to show us what it looks like to practice what we preach, willing to Model integrity. I pray for those of us in here today who don't know you and are being hindered from coming to the gospel because of someone in our lives who are practicing Christianity hypocritically. I would pray that they would see that we are all sinful and that they would see you as the ultimate model. Pray for us today as we are seeking to 
come to know you in a way that changes our actions, changes what we say, and changes kind of who we are at the core so that we have no problem matching our preaching and our practice. Shape us, mold us to be what you'd have us to be. It's in your name we pray. Amen.